Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, he never uses glossy sleeves because he's Matt Morgan. You know, Joey, designers in the Midwest actually discovered a new color on accident. Um, since it was accidental, they are calling this new color taupe. <laughs> I don't, that one went right over my head, Matt, but it sounds like Dana really gets it. Well, if, if you're from the Midwest, you know. Okay. I'm from the Midwest, so yeah, I get it. <laughs> All right. And uh, you can hear him right now. He's the guy who found Crack's other thumb. It was right where Garth was keeping his other eye. That's Dana Roach. Um, as someone who got stung on the neck today by a hornet, I would like to object to the card hornet sting only causing one damage. <laughs> it was not half as painful as a shock. <laughs> that, um... That tracks. It seems more like a, the Hornet Queen with the death touch token. Yes, so really, Daniel, you should just more be, like that. I'm glad that you weren't felled by a death touch. Do you have indestructible? What's your secret? I, I, I do not. I, I, I just make high-pitched squealing sounds afterwards. <laughs> awesome stuff. Anyway, this is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we'd like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Hey, Dana, what is it that we're talking about in this week's episode? In this week's episode, we're going to be talking about uh, challenging deck building templates. That we are. There are a lot of different deck building formulas out there on the web that folks can use to compile a deck list for themselves. But we kind of want to take a critical look at those and see, you know, how they stack up in certain situations, especially because there are some commanders that have effects that might be so potent that it radically changes what you might find from traditional deck building templates, which could be pretty interesting to look into. Real quick, before we get to our main topic, let's pause and give a huge thank you to the folks at the Command Zone podcast who handle the post-production work on our podcast here. And we want to thank our sponsors for the show as well. Uh, the EDH RecCast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player, two of the best places online to buy magic cards. Just go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question, choose the vendor link down below, and doing so supports both the site and the show. And if you would prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDH RecCast. We have patron tiers of all levels. We are releasing patron-exclusive content every single month, and we even have a special tier where we give a shout-out to somebody just for being a patron. So this week, we do want to give a a very, very special thank you to Kyle Kohler. Thank you so much, Kyle, for your support. Thank you for being a patron. We definitely appreciate it and uh, look forward to seeing you in the Discord. Hey, thank you so much, Kyle. And of course, you can catch us streaming EDH games every Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific. That is such an awesome time. Twitch.tv slash EDH RecCast is where you can find us. We'll have just uh, this past week streamed games with at Teferi Magic. We got to play games against Teferi, the Time Wizard. I, Joey, got to play against Time Wizard. That's so cool. Anyway, it's a whole bunch of fun. Twitch.tv slash EDHRecCast. Great stuff going on there. Okay, fellas, let's get to our main topic. We are challenging some deck building templates, specifically by looking at how certain effects, when present in the command zone, might actually affect the categories that can go into your deck. I think to set the stage, we probably have to talk a little bit about some of the traditional deck building templates that we see out there in the wild. So, Dana, do you want to get us a bit familiar with an example of a deck building template that folks might be familiar with. Sure. Um, um, the one that I guess I hear people reference most often when they talk about a template is is the one Command Zone um, talks about. And I think their most recent example referenced like 10 to 12 different ramp spells, um, probably 10 draw spells in your deck, 10 to 12 or so pinpoint removal spells, 
um, three to four wraths, and then like 35 to 38 or so lands in your deck. And then you just fill in, you know, whatever's left with whatever cards your deck wants to run. Right. And and that's not the only one. And none of these are decisive. I feel like we probably got to get that right out there as soon as, as soon as possible, right? Because there is no, quote, correct way to build an EDH deck. But this is like sort of a gentle in as like some targets to maybe hit when you're starting to build a commander deck and don't want to be completely lost in the weeds. I mean, if, if yeah, like if you take away nothing else from kind of the, these these templates, it should be I need to run some amount of ramp and some amount of draw and some amount of removal. <laughs> like maybe you don't hit those metrics, or maybe you have more than those metrics, but at least it gets you thinking about the fact that you need to run some amount of all of those cards. Yeah, a lot of times templates just turn into hey, did you remember to put you know a certain amount of these cards in there? Not that you have to you know get to those numbers that anybody's giving you, um, but just mm-hmm. as a reminder, like. Oh man, I, I finished my deck. This is great. Oh wait, I forgot literally any of the removal for the deck. Um, that might be something pretty important to remember. So sometimes it's just having a reminder of, um, you know, making sure you keep certain amount of cards in there that are going to fulfill any given role. Um, even if it's just a quick little nudge in the right direction saying, hey, you're playing white, you may want to play Path to Exile, maybe Swords of Plowshares, just to make sure. Yeah, or, or it's like, hmm, this deck, if it isn't working, maybe I can go back to some sort of drawing board and see, oh, well, turns out I maybe have been cutting quite a lot of the ramp effects, and maybe that's something I should spruce up a little bit more, because I have drifted pretty far away from what a lot of those templates out there say. And again, that one by the command zone, while referenced perhaps the most, isn't the only one out there. Prof from Tolarian Community College also has his own version of the deck building template, which also has some of the same marks, like ramp at 10+, plus or draw at 10+, plus, but the removal uh, targets that he, the certain quotas there, quote-unquote, are completely different. Uh, so, like, you know, there's a lot of different templates out there. Specifically, we're interested in those as sort of a baseline to work off of because we took some information for some commanders that have certain effects, effects that we think are so potent that they completely scramble up what you might expect from those traditional deck building templates. So we're going to start off by talking about some commanders that draw cards. Matt, do you like drawing cards? Uh, I think everyone likes drawing cards, Joseph. <laughs> um, I, I, I certainly do. I think nobody can deny how much Dana loves to draw cards. He'll even pay life, <laughs> upwards of five plus life to draw a single card. It's five is a low estimate. Let's be real. This Dana, you pay the eight every time for Sylvan Library. So we we know that folks like drawing cards, especially Dana. I, I, Dana, I almost wonder: Are you willing to draw cards even if you don't pay life for it? Like that is. How I mean, much if I have to, I will. Library. But it's way more fun to trade life for them. <laughs> Yeah. And also, like when talking about commanders that draw cards and how that might affect the data that's going on there, I also am just kind of curious, like how popular is card draw, not just within the 99, but from within the command zone. So took a look through some of the top 20 most popular commanders from the past two years. And like, yeah, a lot of the commanders that are the most popular from the past two years draw a lot of cards from those 27 of them have explicit card draw abilities like Corvold or Niv-Mizzet or Lord Windgrace, but there are also six others that have advantages and different effects that almost basically mimic card draw, like Feather, who retains a bunch of cards in your hand. So card draw, I think it's safe to say, is really popular from within the command zone. Yeah, um, you know, part of the reason is, I think once you experience having card draw in the command zone, it just fixes so many problems. It makes getting to everything else easier. It makes it easier to consistently have that removal spell in hand. It makes it easier to consistently hit ramp spells or to, you know, hit creature spells or hit your enablers. It just makes everything in your deck easier and smoother with just one thing, just having draw there 
gives you kind of everything else. It, it makes all of the other things show up more frequently and kind of fixes those problems. Yeah, just having any sort of engine, instead of having to wait and find it within the 99 of your deck, having it mm -hmm. in the command zone, literally access to it at any given time, as long as you have mana for it, um, that is an insanely popular, as we can see, and we'll go over this a little more in depth too. Um, it's just a popular thing to have. Um, Muldrotha the Gravetide was one of the most popular commanders of all time for a long, long time. Number one, top of the top of the heap. Um, but it turns out, you know, players really like having your entire graveyard acting as a second hand. So you play a card, right. you still can essentially play it all over again and again and again the next turn and then again the next turn. So it's having these types of just very, very powerful engines to go along and make sure your deck is just functioning smoothly is something that a lot of players really like having access to. Muldrotha is such a good example because she effectively turns your graveyard into a second hand and that's not explicitly drawn cards, but man, is that card advantage. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, yeah, we're, we're using, I guess, card draw a little bit sloppily maybe here. Because, um, yeah, Modrofa <laughs> for the most part isn't drawing you cards, but, but it kind of is. I mean, like, it's doing the equivalent of it right there using, like like Matt said, your graveyard as your second hand. Yeah, it's it's card advantage. It's yeah. it's not explicitly card draw, but having some sort, like Feather the Redeemed, not explicitly a card draw engine. But when you look at the typical deck, when you're playing a lot of cards that you cast it, you draw a card, you can trip out where you replace it. Well, yeah, typically that's just replacing itself. But with Feather's ability, you're putting not only that card back in your hand, but you're giving yourself the ability to draw another card on the next turn and then repeat that whole pattern all over again too. So Yes, Feather doesn't explicitly say draw cards, but the typical cards in the Feather deck do say draw cards, and you and Feather lets you recur them every single turn, as if you watch twitch.tv slash edhretcast, whenever TV. Joey plays his Feather deck, um, that card, Feather, draws more cards than any other deck we play on stream, and that's the Boros deck. That's it's the Boros deck, good. people. It's, it's, it's pretty fun, not gonna lie. So yeah, the card advantage effects, whether it is some of those commanders that do explicitly draw cards or the ones that just provide a huge advantage, those are things to definitely watch for because it's a very popular type of effect to have right there in the command zone. When specifically looking at some of those commanders that do draw cards, that's where I kind of want to get into like, okay, so going off of those deck building templates of aiming for like roughly 10 draw sources within the 99, is that true for the commanders with card draw effects right there in the command zone? And let's go through some data to see whether it is true. And I took a couple of comparisons for commanders that don't draw cards versus some commanders that do draw cards just to get that nice side-by-side -side comparison. So, for example, Matt, one of your favorite commanders, Alila Artful Provocateur, that's a very popular commander. And the average deck data for Alila shows that the typical player is running about 11 sources of card advantage in an Alila deck. Stuff like Bident of Thassa or Mystic Remora. By comparison, the average Tatiova Benthic Druid deck, who draws cards for Landfall, only has two independent sources of draw separate from Tatiova. Only two card draw spells show up in the average Tatiova deck. And they are AC Tyrant of Gyra Straits, which is another version of Tatiova, and the card Horn of Greed which is a card that's pretty similar to Tatiova. Only two within the 99. That is a very different number than the 10 that we usually uh, are told to look for in those deck building templates. Oh, and in the case of Tatiova, um, it's also a relatively consistent amount of draw. I, I would compare that to, um, you know, I'll use Asperia Supreme Judge, who is a Sphinx commander that I play a deck that also lets you draw cards when someone attacks you. I can't mm. control that for the most part. Yes, my commander in that case says draw cards, but 
I don't know if someone's going to attack me. I don't know what their deck is going to do. Maybe two of my opponents are playing decks that are combo-based and don't swing very often. Maybe just the fact that I've played my commander has discouraged them from attacking, which is useful to not be attacked, but it also doesn't help me draw cards. So like, that's a case where it's a deck where I don't want to rely too much on my commander's, you know, quote-unquote card draw ability to draw me cards, whereas Tatiova, on the other hand, you can control that pretty readily. You are going to play a land and draw a card, um, which is going to hopefully give you maybe a land that you can play to draw another card. Like that's within <laughs> your realm of control. Therefore, you feel much more comfortable. I think relying on that to be your primary source of draw in that deck. Yeah, well, and it's I think the reason that Tatiova and AC Tyrant of Gary Straits, since they are largely the same commander, um, the mm. reason that they rely so heavily on Tati on. Tatiova and AC um, in the command zone is because of what you're doing to, to draw cards off of their abilities. Playing lands is just a extremely fundamental part of playing a game of magic. Um, you typically want to be doing it every turn. Um, so typically with these two commanders, you're doing it at baseline. You're drawing an extra card per turn. And when you look at the typical decks, they're pl you're playing a bunch of cards that are going to let you play extra lands each turn, which means extra cards you're going to draw each turn, which then just feeds <laughs> itself over and over again. So it's the fact that like it's so easy to satisfy the condition on Tatio of an AC where you just play a land. That's what you want to be doing. Every deck literally is going to be playing lands. Um, so just rewarding that, that's an extremely powerful effect. Whereas when you look at other commanders that don't have these types of draw effects, like Alila, yeah, you have to lean into all these other sources of card draw because their payoff is dependent on something you aren't necessarily doing every single turn. If you don't draw the right cards, you're not getting a whole lot from a little Artful Provocateur because you have to be casting those artifacts and enchantments where you're just playing lands. Everybody plays lands. <laughs> right. um, that's why Tatiova's ability is so powerful and those two commanders are so popular. Well, and it's also kind of important to note, as I think Dana might have been hinting at earlier, card draw effects can kind of cascade into even more card draw spells. Like when you've drawn a whole bunch, you've gotten a whole bunch of advantage that helps you not just find other sources of removal and stuff like that, but you might also then by having drawn a bunch of cards, you'll find another thing that can draw you a bunch of cards and just keep cycling and get a whole bunch of card velocity through your deck. When you're dependent upon drawing that first one within your 99, that is a very different relationship to my commander is providing that to me right there from the command zone to help me find those things that get that velocity that momentum going in the first place I, I want to tease you guys with even more data here like not just the alila and the tatiova as an example but also here's one kirik son of yagmoth the average kirik deck that mono black one who saves you on mana by phyrexianizing all of your black mana uh pips in the deck the average kirik deck is running an it's about like 12 sources of card advantage in that deck stuff like villas or sign and blood are pretty big uh, examples that might show up there Compared to that, a commander like Korvold, who draws cards when you sacrifice stuff, how many card draw spells do you think show up in the average Korvold deck? Any guesses? Because it's real low, it's only three. Only three independent sources of card draw show up in the average Korvold deck. Stuff like Moldervine Reclamation or the Gitrog Monster. That's really low. That's very different from the traditional template. In, in, in the Kyrick to, to Korvold comparison is right there in the card text. Um, you know, Kyrick is a very powerful commander. Um, you know, for each black and a spell's mana cost, you can pay two life rather than pay that mana's cost. Um, so, you know, th that right there is going to reduce the cost of a lot of spells if you're not afraid to pay a little bit of life, which 
I personally am not usually, <laughs> but that doesn't <laughs> actually verify. draw you cards in that, uh, on that commander, right? You can reduce the cost and it makes it way easier to cast those draw spells, but it's, it, it itself isn't drawing you anything. So 12 draw sources in that deck makes sense, comparable to Korvald, where when you sacrifice a thing, you just draw a card. It's right there written on the commander. That's one of the primary abilities, um, in addition to it getting bigger and flying and smash people in the face, um, therefore you just need less draw. It's just it's just telling you right there. And, and I would imagine in playing that deck, you just don't have a problem with. Uh, I've never seen a Corval deck struggle to draw cards before. You just don't need those external sources because it's right there, um, signposted on the exactly. card for you. Exactly. That's such the big thing. I think that it would be a mistake for a Corvold player to try and go up to that 10 uh, sources of card draw. Like drawing too many cards is never really a problem, but I think that that deck basically doesn't need it. None of these commanders that draw a whole bunch of cards through the advent of their own abilities that extremely, I think that they don't need it. They just don't need to pay attention. And that completely scrambles what we would traditionally associate with a deck building template. And that's important to know if you're trying to build any of these commanders with an effect that is this potent right there from the command zone. Yeah, like you definitely have some effect of diminishing returns when it comes to putting too many card draw effects into some of these commanders that don't really need them. Like Corvold, we've talked about this Jund Dragon being one of the most powerful commanders of all time just because of his ability to get bigger and then draw cards whenever you're sacrificing permanence. And it just so happens too, like you're in red, green, and black, which typically, um, Joey, you can you can back me up there. You have no problem sacrificing permanence in those colors at all. Never has happened in Jund colors, right? Literally right. never. Not, Literally, not only, okay, perfect. Will, will, will a single Dockside Extortionist completely rocket you forward? Yes, absolutely. But like, I will play a Sylvan Safekeeper, which allows me to sacrifice my lands at will, and I will sacrifice my lands to draw cards. This is a thing that I will do, and it won't hurt me that much because I'll draw more lands this way. <laughs> yeah, so so taking the facetious layer off, like the, the, <laughs> the, the color combination that Corvold happens to be in, just like it, it's so so easily lends itself to these types of abilities and types of strategies where you want to be sacrificing things anyways. Like even if you have fetch lands or uh, evolving wilds, like cracking and evolving wilds lets you draw a card. Like that's just how simple and powerful Corvold Faker's King is. Well, another good head-to-head comparison here is if you look at something like Animar Soul of Elements, um, you know, Animar is a commander that's been around for quite a while and is, is still fairly popular. Protection from black and white is really nice to have on your commander. That that is going to save you from maybe running some protection spells, um, but it doesn't draw you cards. Whenever you cast a creature spell, you put a counter on it, and creature spells cost one less to cast for each counter on Animar. So um, it makes it cheaper to cast creature spells, but it doesn't draw you cards. Animar decks therefore tend to run, you know, a dozen draw sources. Looking at our numbers most of which tend to be attached to creature bodies because those creatures are going to be cheaper to cast. So you get things like Beast Whisperer that's going to draw you a card when you cast a creature spell um, or Soul of Harvest doing the same thing. And then you compare that to things like Arcades the Strategist, which is, you know, four mana, so not dissimilar to cast, a flying vigilant dragon that says whenever a creature with Defender enters the battlefield under your control, you draw a card. So there we're looking at no card advantage spells for the most part in those decks, statistically speaking on EDH rec, because every single wall you cast in that deck is going to draw you a card. Like your creatures are the draw spells compared to Animar, where the creatures are going to be your draw effect when you do something else. I I really want to linger on that for a moment. 
Independent of Arcades the Strategist, the average Arcades deck is running zero extra sources of card draw spells. There are a small number of walls like Wall of Omens that when it enters the battlefield, it draws a card, but that's more of a cantrip than a card advantage spell because it doesn't increase the number of cards you had in hand. Like zero other draw X cards effects in Arcades because that's just how good that effect can be right there in the command zone. That kind of thing is mind-blowing. That is really, really intense. That is a huge shakeup to the traditional template that you might expect to follow. And Arcadius has demonstrated that you don't need to follow, you don't need to look for 10 more draw sources. He's got it covered. Yeah, when I mean, when you look at the average Arcadius deck as well, it, it's literally a bunch of walls. They're already fairly efficiently costed as walls historically are one to do. Um, so you have a bunch of really efficiently costed creatures that are going to come into play. They're going to, you know, get you another card to replace themselves. And you're just going to be able to just churn through your deck because, yeah, there's a lot of just two, three mana walls. So you play that, you draw the next one, you play that, you draw the next one, and you just keep that engine going. Like, Arcades the Strategist is an extremely fast, extremely powerful deck because... Yeah, all those creatures, not only are they replacing themselves, but they're doing it at such a cheap mana investment. That's the part that I think really gets wild with Arcades decks. And this kind of, I think, moves into a greater conversation about the role that certain types of card draw in a deck right there in the command zone specifically can play. And it can kind of completely change the soul of the deck, like not just futz with the numbers a little bit, but like actually turn the deck into something that maybe you didn't intend for it to be in the first place. Dana, for example, you mentioned that you've got a Sphinx tribal deck and a really popular Sphinx tribal commander is Unesh Cryosynx uh, Sovereign, who when it or other Sphinxes enter the battlefield, you get to do a mini factor fiction type of ability where you get a bunch of cards off the top of your deck, your opponent chooses some piles and you get to put a bunch of them into your hand. Unesh very quickly became a sort of pseudo storm deck where you're just chaining through tons and tons and tons of small sphinxes, not because they're sphinxes and you want to play large flying creatures and attack your opponents with them, but because that effect is so good at drawing you cards that you're able to just mow through your entire deck really, 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 really fast. You're more interested in one mana changelings than you are specific sphinxes. Like that's how powerful some of these abilities can be, that it doesn't just change the typical formula of the deck, it changes the whole soul of it too. Yeah, um, it, it's... What the deck does is not what it does, I guess, is, is how, you would, <laughs> how you would say it. Um, you know, we've mentioned this this card before. Andre Falconrath um, oh, looks yeah. like a Madness Commander, but she's really, for the most part, winds up not being a Madness Commander in the same way Unesh winds up not being a Sphinx Tribal Commander. Um, Andre winds, winds up being a commander where you're just looking to discard things so you can dig down to find something else to discard you know, until you can eventually find that combo piece. Um you know, Joyra, the the most recent Joyra, where you draw a card whenever you cast a historic spell, winds up very often being a deck just filled with zero drop artifacts, which are often called eggs. So you can play an artifact for zero mana to draw a card, to play an artifact to draw a card, and same thing, filter down and try to find whatever combo piece you're looking for. Yeah, this is just fascinating stuff. And granted, some of these that we just went through are certainly extreme examples where the entire deck kind of upheavals itself and, and moves into a different style. And suddenly this Sphinx Tribal becomes a Storm deck, for example. But throughout most of the other examples that we looked through, like it, there's certainly a consistent pattern here that we can see where commanders with certain card draw abilities, that definitely changes 
what we might have expected from a more traditional template that other commanders might be following. And that is a huge thing for you to note when you are building up your, your commander and looking for ways to fill in that deck to make sure that it works really well. The commander's effect can play a very significant role in that. So when using those deck building templates to try and get comfortable with building your own deck, it's good to note that like they're certainly not a strict always follow this guideline and they never have been. But these are really good examples of why that is also the case. Yeah, I touched on this with Animar, but like Animar having protection from white and black eliminates a ton of targeted removal spells that get pointed for commander towards your commander. So maybe in your Animar deck, you can worry less about having those lightning greaves or swift foot boots um, in your 99 to protect your commander. Or, you know, using Arcades for an example as well. Arcades is a commander that has flying right there on the card. So it's a little bit easier to poke through and hit somebody in the face for commander damage. Uh, Korvald is an even better example. Korvald who gets really, really big because of the plus one counters it gets when something gets sacrificed. Korvald also has evasion. So it's much easier to poke through and hit somebody for lethal commander damage. And that saves a couple slots in your deck that you might otherwise have to devote to giving your commander trample, for example, to make sure that damage can get through. Ah, so Dana, what I see you're hinting at is that it's not just about card draw. There are other categories that can be affected by your commander's abilities, too, that we might want to get into in the second half of this episode. Is that what I think you're hinting at there, I, sir? I, we call that foreshadowing, Joey. <laughs> well done. But before we get to that, let's pause and come back to one of our favorite segments here on the show. How about we challenge some stats? It's been a while because of set reviews, but let's talk about some of those statistics on EDHREC because there's just so much data there, but we don't always agree with that. Sometimes Sometimes we think that cards see too much play or too little play, so we like to challenge those stats. Matt, how about you start us off this week? What is your challenge? Well, my challenge this week isn't actually my challenge. Um, this week, I'm going to pull from one of our listeners in the Discord, which you can join over at patreon.com slash edhretcast. Um, it's a great place to do it. Um, but yeah, so um, our listener Gabriel GS in the Discord um, had a really good challenge, actually, that um, I think folk might want to pay a little more attention to coming up. So the card that they're challenging is Viridian Revel. It is one green green for an enchantment that says whenever an artifact is put into an opponent's graveyard from the battlefield, you may draw a card. Um, so it seems only fitting that we're going to talk about this card on this episode. Um, but Gabriel points out Viridian Revel is a wonderful way to profit from your opponent's creature or treasure production. Um, it is currently in 141 decks, but I think it should start seeing more play, especially since it's only 17 cents at the time of writing this. Um, Gabriel, that's an excellent point. Um, Adventures in the Forgotten Realms, plus just everything in the past year and a half, I would say. There's a lot of treasure tokens floating around. There's a lot of clue tr tokens floating around. A lot of food <laughs> tokens floating around. There's just all these artifact types now that people are putting into decks just accidentally. Um, this is a great way to punish them for doing that. You're drawing cards. Um, it's just a very powerful card. It makes Dockside Extortionist seem maybe a little, not too much, but a little less overpowered. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's, wow. it's a great card. I really like Viridian Revel. This is a, a solid, solid addition. I am... Totally blown away by, by blown away by this one so much that I can't even speak anymore. Gabriel, this is an excellent pick because yes, mothering ties, dockside extortionists. This isn't draw that you're necessarily in control of, but if I just played a smothering tie, then then someone else plays a Viridian Revel, I will get a little bit nervous about how much advantage I'd be giving them. I really like this challenge. This is cool. Well, and this is powerful across all different power levels of decks too. Like if you're playing in in higher power stuff where people are using a lot of treasures, then it's going to be great. If you're playing more casual games um people are playing commander spheres still um even if sure. they sacrifice that and, and they're getting 
their own card draw, you're matching that too. Like there's just across the board, um, people are sacrificing artifacts. It's just something that's just very, very common in the game today. So yeah, this is great no matter what power level you're playing at. Excellent stuff. Okay, Dana, let's move to your challenge. What do you got this week? So so since Matt mentioned how many treasures are popping up in the game lately, um, I want to throw the card out there, Reverse Engineer, um, from back in Kaladesh originally. It's three blue-blue. Uh, it says draw three cards, which isn't very good for five mana. However, it is Improvise, which means your artifacts can help cast this spell. Each artifact you tap after activating mana abilities reduces the cost by one. So if you have three artifacts you can tap, this is a two mana draw three. Um, there's a ton of treasures out there, like we had just said. And if you are playing in a deck producing a bunch of them, well, the only thing better than sacrificing your treasure for mana is to tap your treasure functionally for mana and be able to sacrifice <laughs> it later on if you need to. It's if you are playing a heavy treasure deck and we just got a treasure commander in Lona's Cryptozoologist that makes a ton of clues and tends to also show up in decks where people are building a lot of treasures and um, um, food tokens as well. It gives you things that you can tap just to draw cards and make the spell cheaper to cast. Um, the other thing is if you happen to be playing in an equipment deck that has access to blue, you can just tap those swords and hammers and whatever your commander is wearing, again, just to make this a two-mana draw three. Um, it's in just over 2,000 decks right now, and I'm not necessarily saying it should be in a lot more, but I'm saying there's probably plenty of decks that could really take advantage of this being a really efficient draw spell that aren't because they aren't thinking in terms of tapping treasures, tapping clues, tapping equipment to pay for that cost. That's really interesting. I think it's important to note that there are some of those sacrificable artifacts that do have to tap as a regular part of their cost. Yes. So if you tap them for improvise, they probably wouldn't be able to do their own thing until your next untap. But I mean, you saved having to use your treasures there. So is that really much of a loss? I don't think so. That's a very sneaky way of finding some efficiency there, Dana. I mean, it's probably not a coincidence that I just put together a equipment deck that's uh, running blue. So. <laughs> I see where your head is at. All right, cool stuff. Well, you went with a recent card, which is pretty uncharacteristic for you. Who are you and what have you done with Dana Roach? So I'm going to try and out Dana you in my challenge for this week. Dana, are you familiar with the card Chiron Negotiations? Because this is my challenge. I don't think I am. How Sweet. are you? I even know what this card is, Dana. Come on. I I love finding cards that Dana's never heard of. Chiron Negotiations is a four-mana red enchantment that says tap an untapped creature you control. Chiron Negotiations deals one damage to target player. This is a weird card, and it only shows up in 820 decks. And I can totally see why, because if you've got a lot of creatures, I mean, chances are that you can just, you know attack with them instead of needing to bother with tapping them to just ping for one damage. So it doesn't belong in every deck that's making a whole bunch of tokens, but there are certain commanders that can totally take advantage of it. For example, the new Magda Brazen Outlaw, which creates treasures. This keeps this is a running theme for our challenge to stats, apparently. Magda Brazen Outlaw taps uh, whenever it becomes tapped or other dwarves you control become tapped, you create treasure tokens. And this is just a tap outlet right there to help you get a whole bunch of treasure, but it's also just kind of a neat effect that you can use if you happen to be making a whole bunch of tokens and you're not as confident with the combat step in case you're playing against someone like matt who likes to fog my combats or uses his miri weatherlight duelist to stop me from attacking him or has just regular ghostly prison effects in general matt i just want to attack you why don't you let me do this uh, see all these things that you're talking about they just like <laughs> they just make me like my decks more 
<laughs> well, I'm just saying, this is a really interesting effect that can allow you to ping players instead of going to combat if you happen to get a whole bunch of tokens. And that even works if the tokens just came into play that turn because Chiron Negotiations is the one tapping them. They don't bother with summoning sickness in that case. This is a very, very strange card from Magda in particular. It's really, really cool. And less than a third of Magda decks are playing it right now. But this is an obscure red enchantment that can ping players. And I think that that's really cool. And I'm mostly just proud that I found a card that Dana's never heard of before. Yeah, well played, Joey. That's um, you, you, you stumped me. So th this is a card actually I was giving consideration to for my Alibu deck because it's a, a free way to tap a bunch of my artifact creatures. Hey. Um, I only need to attack with one and then it soups up Alibu's ability. <laughs> um, it's a pretty spicy card. So I, I'm glad that you found this one, Joey. Sweet deal. Okay, fellas, let's move back into our main topic. We talked about card draw in the command zone, but let's look at some other effects that could be present in the command zone and how maybe some of those affect the traditional numbers that we would have expected to see from a deck building template. Let's move to discussion of commanders that have removal effects, whether they are wrath effects that destroy a whole bunch of stuff right there on your commander, or if they have pinpoint removal effects that can destroy specific targets on the field and how that might change the numbers that we see in their average deck data. We'll make a quick pit stop by talking here about Rakdos the Showstopper. Yeah, so, well, Rakdos the Showstopper isn't so much pinpoint removal, but it's definitely removal of some sort. So Rakdos the, Shor <laughs> the Showstopper is four black red for a 6-6 legendary demon uh, with flying and trample and reads when Rakdos the Showstopper enters the battlefield, flip a coin for each creature that isn't a demon, devil, or imp, and then you destroy each creature whose coin comes up tails. Um, so it's a completely chaotic way to potentially wrath the board or potentially just have everybody uh, wipe the, the sweat off their brows because everybody dodged <laughs> that 50-50 chance. So this is a really interesting effect that I've played against a handful of times and man, can it be really backbreaking, especially if you pair this with like a conjurer's closet to get that blink effect. Like very few creatures survive a Rakdos ETB, let alone two in a single turn, but it still can totally happen. But since this is a very potent effect right there in the command zone that leaves most of the Rakdos' players uh, board untouched because it tends to be a demon tribal deck, how does that affect the removal, removal spells that we see in the deck, you know, there's that traditional formula that we saw earlier in the show about like 10 pinpoint removal spells and maybe three to four wraths. Does that hold up for the average Rakdos deck data? And looking at the data we have for Rakdos, we see that there, there are still seven pinpoint removal spells being ran in this deck, although they do tend to lean a little bit into um, creatures that do qualify for like the, the demon or, or devil um, type that, that would exempt them from the, the coin flip. You have things like Reaper of the Abyss or Oversee the Damned mm. that actually do function as creature removal but would not have to be hit by the, the Rakdos ability itself. Um, and on average, looking at about two and a half Wrath spells as well, things like Blasphemous Act and Last One Standing that are also going to sweep the board. But in the case of Blasphemous Act, it's super efficient. Last One Standing is relatively efficient as well. So um, this kind of points to a deck that probably is also built around control. Just your commander sweeping things isn't necessarily enough because this deck is probably looking to keep everything pretty tightly under wraps. And, and when folks are wondering what Dana means by two and a half Wrath spells in the deck, that's because Vandal Blast is also one of them, and that can destroy everyone else's artifacts, which is a mass removal effect, but doesn't hit all card types. So that one's kind of a wishy-washy sort of thing. Like, is that count as a Wrath? Listeners, no. you can decide. No. <laughs> and, and we know Matt's opinion right there. But <laughs> hey, Matt, that spell is really good with Viridian Revel. Eh? 
It is very good with Viridian Revel. I, I will give you that. <laughs> so it looks like Rakdos's, you know, effect destroying stuff right there in the command zone. There are fewer of those pinpoint removal spells, but they're still a pretty decent number. So that isn't a huge impact. But what about our next example? Matt, are you familiar with Zakama Primal Calamity? I, I believe I am. Now, refresh my memory. So Zakama Primal Calamity, that's the six and Naya color. So red, green, white, legendary elder dinosaur, right? That's yes, that is the who nine also happens dinosaur. to be a nine nine. Yeah, um, yes, has vigilance reach and trample. Yes, it does. It when does Zaka- and also when Zakama Primal Calamity enters the battlefield, uh, if you cast it, you get to untap all the lands you control. We're yes, still, very. We're still very, thinking of the same card, right? We, we, we are thinking of the same okay. card. Very necessary lines of text, all of these. On very necessary. Um, but there's also three abilities, I believe. Three activated abilities. Uh, you can pay two and a red to deal three damage to a creature. Or you can pay two and a green to destroy target artifact or enchantment. Also mm-hmm. go with Viridian Revel. Um, or you can also pay, I believe it's two and a white to gain a whopping three life. Um, I believe Which, we're thinking of the same cards. The comma Primal Calamity, right? We're, we're thinking of the same card okay. there. That is um, some pretty potent removal right there on those activated abilities. This dinosaur means business. And unlike with Rakdos, um, this uh, set of abilities very much does cut into how many people want to run in that deck. When we look at the stats we have from the Zakama decks, there's really only three pinpoint removal spells we see showing up in those lists. Um, Beast Within, Path to Exile, and Swords to Plowshares two of which just hit creatures and one of which hits anything. Um, and we're not seeing, on average, any Wraths get run in those decks. Not any. This this is crazy to me. Like, when I looked through this data, I thought that I was completely, like, that I must have drawn it wrong or whatever. But, like, you know, there are plenty of removal spells that you might find on Zakama's page. But, again, we're going off of the average deck information when we pull all that data together and combine to make an average list. Three pinpoint removal spells, on average, make it into a typical Zakama deck and zero Wraths. Which is insane, but that's just how good these abilities can be in as a combo deck and how much it's able to take advantage of the fact that it can deal so much damage to enemy creatures and take away so many artifacts and enchantments across the field from you. That heavily affects the stuff that you'd be putting into the 99 when this is in your command zone. Heavily affects it. Well, and and another commander that does this really well too is the Reaper King, which is the five color or... 10 mana somehow um <laughs> legendary scarecrow um it's six six artifacts legendary uh, scarecrow that says other scarecrow creatures you get plus one get plus one plus one which isn't really the relevant ability um but whenever another scarecrow comes into play under your control you destroy target permanent as in anytime a scarecrow comes into play uh you get a free vindicate basically which is a very very powerful old spell it's just three mana destroy target permanent That is really intense. So how many pinpoint removal spells and how many wrath effects show up in the average Reaper King deck there, Matt? Uh, One. Just just the one. Just just one. (laughs) Just just one pinpoint removal spell. Uh, Somehow Swords to Plowshares, uh, the the, the classic uh, exile target creature and its owner gains uh, life equal to the toughness. That somehow sneaks into a Reaper King deck, but there's no board wipes. There's no other removal. Uh, they're just really counting on those scarecrows to carry all the all the work, which doesn't make sense because the, their bodies are very frail. They're they're made out of straw. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> no, I think that's such a testament to the potency of your commander's ability. Technically, that commander is running tons of removal spells. They just all take the form of scarecrows that are dependent upon your commander's presence on the battlefield. But that is a huge departure from deck building formulas that totally needs to be noted there. So yeah, what an astonishing example 
example, one pinpoint removal spell in that deck on average and zero wrath effects. That, I think, tells you how good Reaper King is at destroying stuff. Well, if we want to talk about um, commanders that destroy stuff, Joey, why don't we take a look at uh, Nevenroll, one of our recent commanders that was in the Commander Legends set. Ah, yes. So this is where things get a little bit sideways because we've seen plenty of examples of how the effect that is present in the command zone can diminish the numbers that appear within the 99. Sometimes, though, that goes completely the opposite. And Nivinarol is a huge example of that. Nivinarol, Urborg Tyrant is the Esper zombie wizard commander who costs a bunch of mana, has hexproof from artifact creatures and enchantments, and it creates zombies for things that die. But the important text is that it kind of mimics Nivinarol's disc. When Nivinarol himself dies, you can pay one mana, and when you do, you destroy all artifacts, creatures, and enchantments. So a huge wrath effect that destroys a bunch of stuff right there in your command zone. And unlike some of the other examples where we saw that this decreased the number of removal effects that appeared in the 99, Nivinarol is basically a wrath tribal deck. It's insane. Nivinarol's average deck data shows that it plays... (laughs) around nine different wrath effects, including Nevenerol's disc, but also including stuff like Toxic Deluge or Austere Command or obscure ones like Doomscar from Kaldheim. This is a very wrath-heavy commander. So even though it does removal stuff from the command zone, that actually just encourages players to build into that effect, apparently, even more. Yeah, um, and we saw this a little bit, I think, with Rakdos the Showstopper as well, but, but you're right. Sometimes the opposite occurs, where instead of allowing you to run less of a thing. It's just encouraging you to run even more of the thing and really (laughs) lean into that as your theme. And I think we're going to see even more of that pop up in the next category we look at, which is ramp. Hey, Dana, is that that foreshadowing thing that you were talking about earlier? (laughs) Yes, indeed it is. I see what you were doing there. All right, let's move to that category now, ramp in the command zone. When your commander is providing you with mana advantages with its own abilities, how does that affect the ramp sources and how many of them you're playing in the 99? Let's get to a few examples here. A commander that provides you with a huge boon of mana right there from the command zone, for instance, is Nikia of the Old Ways, who doubles your mana output from your all of your lands, but you can only use that mana on creatures. How does that affect the number of mana acceleration effects that we see in the 99 that can get you ahead on mana so that you can do a whole bunch of stuff? Are there more in the deck? Are there fewer? Turns out that, yeah, there are actually on average more mana acceleration effects in the 99 for the Nikia deck. Stuff like Arbor Elf or Sakura Tribuilder or Voyaging Seder, for instance. An average of 15 mana acceleration effects appear in a Nikia deck, even though Nikia herself provides a whole bunch of mana. It seems like when your commander provides a bunch of mana, the rest of the deck kind of wants to lean into that ability a whole bunch more. Um, Yeah, and in the case of this, we're looking at a little bit of extra synergy as well. Because you're limited to using that mana only for for creature spells, then the deck probably wants to run a lot of creatures, and therefore you're going to use maybe creatures that ramp you as well. So you have, because you might as well use the mana to cast a creature spell versus using you know half as much mana to cast a rampant growth or something, why not <laughs> use a creature that does the same thing because you can use your double mana for that purpose. So it, it's the kind of thing that, that just becomes self-perpetuating. You want to run more creatures because you can use that mana um, just for creature spells. 
So you might as well use creatures that then ramp you anyway, and it, it, it just <laughs> kind of turns into a bit of a feedback loop there. Well, and, and the deck is also very similar to uh, Mono Green Savala, Savala Heart of the Wilds, which is kind of an older one, mm -hmm. but it was uh, did get reprinted back in Jumpstart, but it's just the, the one green green uh, for the 2-3 Elf Scout. And the, the key ability that people seem to focus in on is where you can pay a green and tap it and add X mana of any combination of colors where X is the greatest power among creatures you control. So as opposed to Nikia, where everything's getting a little extra mana, you're just making one big clump of mana all at once with uh, Silvala's ability. But also, you're still playing, it looks like, you know, about 15 or so mana accelerants on their own in the deck, too. You, you have your, your mana dorks like Elvish Mystic, Birds of Paradise. Um, you're playing the big powerhouses as well, too, though, like Nyx Bloom Ancient and Priest of Titania. So you're all across the board, but you're still playing a bunch of these very, very powerful mana increasing effects. And a really quick thing that I want to jump in here to point out with the numbers that you noted there for Silvala, where it's like, oh, we're seeing about 15 mana acceleration effects. Those are just mana acceleration effects that are independent from that Silvala. That number doesn't include stuff that amplifies Silvala's own ability, like an effect that untaps her to produce the mana again, like Umbral Mantle, for example, which I think is a pretty famous infinite combo with Silvala because it allows you to untap her over and over with the mana that is produced by her. Those effects we're not counting in that 15 number figure. So 15 independent sources of acceleration are still showing up in addition to the other ways that can sell that Silvala can make a whole bunch more mana on top of that. So we're seeing that there's a really big lean in even more than the numbers that are just here in front of us. Well, and we also see a little bit of that, that kind of feedback loop show up in Urza Lord High Artificer. Um, mm. Urza is a commander where uh, one of his abilities is you can tap an untapped artifact you control to add blue to your mana pool. So any artifact you run functionally becomes a mana rock. But we're still seeing 13 different forms of mana acceleration in that deck. Things like Mindstone or Everflowing Chalice, for example, you know, just different types of mana rocks, despite the fact that every artifact in the deck is a mana rock. However, um, also on Urza's card, you can make a 0 0 construct creature token with plus one, plus one for each artifact you control. So again, it becomes a feedback loop where, yes, your artifacts are all mana rocks, but the more mana rocks you run, the <laughs> bigger it makes that construct token. So why not just lean into that and everything feeds onto itself? Yeah, this is really interesting stuff. There are tons of other examples of commanders that provide a mana advantage from right there in the command zone, but we can certainly see that there are subtle ways that this affects the stuff that shows up in your deck, and there are some pretty grand ways that it might affect it as well. And I'm really kind of delighted, I think, to see in this particular instance that it doesn't always have a reduction effect in your deck. That, you know, those commanders that draw a bunch of cards, you don't need to run as many card draw spells in the 99, but when it comes to an effect that ramps you in the command zone, Maybe that just makes you want to lean in even harder to that effect when you're building out the rest of the 99. That's just such a cool lesson to learn that there is, again, just like the templates themselves, there's no, quote, correct way to do any of this. It is very much about feeling out the deck and getting experience with it under your belt. And these are just some really fascinating examples of how that formula can change per each commander with their own unique set of abilities. Well, and this is the kind of thing I think might be interesting to look at our own decks and see how it affects the, the, the couple of decks that we've brewed in particular. Mm. Um, the first one I can maybe mention for myself is my Reki History of Kamigawa deck because it has draw a card right there written on the commander. Whenever you cast a legendary spell, draw a card. Um, I do have draw sources in the deck, but I only have six of them, which is significantly less than I usually run in the deck. Um, I have things like the Great Hinge, which is a legendary <laughs> card. So like, 
it's doing double duty for me there. Um, but yeah, I, I would not otherwise just run six draw sources in a deck if my commander didn't have the words draw a card written right on it. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in a similar boat with my AC Tyrant of Gary Straits deck. Um, I was at one point running seven other draw sources, and I've since taken two of those out because really <laughs> the deck doesn't need any more help. Like if, if it's going to go off, it's going to go off whether um, I am trying or not or whether people are trying to stop it or not. Um, it's just the, the deck just is. Um, so yeah, drawing cards has never been a problem with that deck. So I, I've definitely shaved off a couple there too because... Um, when you're just playing lands and benefiting from it, like we said earlier, um, it doesn't need a whole lot of extra help to keep going. Those are really, really interesting examples. There is one thing that I kind of want to note about some of these effects that like when your commander has such a dramatic effect from right there in the command zone that it reshapes the other categories and stuff that you would traditionally build towards when you're building out another deck, there is kind of like there are sometimes consequences of that, which I think are definitely worth noting here. Like when I think of Joyra, the uh, Danny, you called it the eggs commander where you can just play a bunch of zero mana artifacts and then Joyra draws you a bunch of cards because you're casting those historic spells. Well, that is really, really good. So good that you maybe don't need a bunch of other card draw spells right there in your deck because the commander is doing it all right there for you. But that does have a pretty significant consequence on the deck where it makes the rest of the deck extremely commander dependent, where just shutting down Joyra maybe means that the deck doesn't do much of anything at all because it isn't doing that chaining effect whatsoever. So, you know, if you've got one of those commanders that has such a sweeping effect on the rest of your deck, watch out for Mr. Matt Morgan over there with his Song of the Dryads if it's ever targeted at your commander, or Dana with his Lignifies to completely incapacitate them because that's going to have a much more detrimental effect on those types of decks compared to some of the others. See, all I'm trying to do when I cast Song of the Dryads is trying to help ramp people out. Um, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you don't have to play ramp for yourself because I'll help you ramp. Um, so really, I'm just helping Joyra players by turning Joyra into a forest. Matt's like, I'll show you ramp from within the command zone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is excellent. Fellows, do we have any other final thoughts that we want to leave off with about the ways that effects in the command zone can change the traditional deck building template? Any other ideas hitting you? Uh, I think we focus primarily on the really big, broad strokes here to make the point very clear. We talked about things like ramp or draw or removal where you tend to run, you know, 10 or 12 of those effects and how that changes those numbers. Um, but it doesn't necessarily have to be things that are that obvious or things that are that big. Um, mm. I'll, I'll use an example. I have a Kedis and Krom deck that's built around hitting people with commander damage usually. And I'm going to, I'm going to buff up um, Krom with multiple like red spells that give it plus three, plus three, and then double damage or something um, mm. to hit people for, for lethal damage. When I was testing that deck out before I put it together, one of the commanders I had messed around with trying instead was Melek is a Paragon to double spells at the top of your library to kind of double those buff spells and stuff. One of the problems I found when, when, when playtesting that deck just virtually was I needed some amount of ways to give Melek either trample or unblockable or something to, to be able to poke through. Mm. And that was going to suck up like three or four or five slots in my deck. Once I eventually switched over to using Krom for the commander, who number one has haste, but number two has flying, and it is much easier to poke through and hit at least one person usually who doesn't have flyers out. 
that freed up quite a few slots in that deck because I didn't have to worry nearly as much about evasion or ways to poke that damage through. So it can be like little subtle things like that. I, I mentioned, you know, building a, a equipment Azorius deck. I, I'm using Arden and um, SUR Wardwing Familiar, and SUR gives your commanders. Uh, mostly ward three it doesn't work for abilities but sure. any spells that target that that commander cost three more to cast well well because i have at least a little bit of protection on that that thing i'm going to put equipment on that means i don't have to worry as much about things like swift foot boots or lightning greaves or something to, to give it hex proof because it has some degree of protection built in so i've freed up a couple of slots there as well so it, it can be something small or subtle it isn't necessarily about maybe freeing up 10 slots in your deck, it can sometimes even just be freeing up like two or three. Well, and, and one thing that I noticed about my Omnath Locus of Rage deck specifically, which that's the the legendary gruel um, landfall type of commander where every time a land comes into play, I create a 5-5. Five five. Um, one thing that I noticed about my deck, but then when I look at EDHREX page for Omnath Locus of Rage as well, a lot of players aren't playing near as many creatures as your typical mm -hmm. grill deck would be. Um, when you look at Omnath's page, there's only 22 creatures where the typical gruel commander is playing 33, 48, um, 56 <laughs> in Nikki of the old ways. Like a ton, yeah, like yeah. gruel decks tend to love their creatures. Um, but so 22 creatures and mine is running significantly less than 22. Um, but that's because Omnath Locus of Rage kind of makes his own army. I just go about playing my strategy, you know, play the landfall cards, make sure I'm getting lands every turn. And I make my army that way. I don't need to be casting creatures because I can just be playing lands. It's kind of the same way that Tatiova doesn't need to play any card draw effects. Omnath doesn't need to play too many more creatures because he's just benefiting from playing more lands anyways. Um, that's one thing I've noticed about my decks is um, if, if my commander's doing something very, very well, I don't really need to overload on that because especially with Omnath, even if Omnath gets destroyed a couple times, I just play more lands, which is what I'm doing anyways. Right. Um, and I just keep about, you know, going about my day. Um, it's just very interesting that, you know, Omnath as a commander doesn't just skip off a certain category, but an entire card type um, and just shaves on the creatures because you're getting five fives with every land you play. That is kind of resonating with me here too, is that like there are ways that when looking through some of these things and the small, even the small things that your commander can do, like that will have a sometimes subtle, sometimes grand effect on it. At Matt, to kind of piggyback off of that with the mana that you mentioned there, when I'm thinking of my Conrad deck, Conrad has an activated ability to mill other players so that his ability can deal damage to them. If compared to some other commanders, like if I overload that deck with too many mana acceleration sources, that's not going to hit me as hard in that deck because I've got a place where I can just put all of that mana that my commander is a mana sink. Whereas there are plenty of other decks where too many mana acceleration sources means that they kind of sputter out without a bunch of cards in their hand. They've got a bunch of mana, but nothing to do with all of it. And that again is like one of those subtle things that still has an interesting effect on the other categories that I might see in my deck. So there's just so many interesting ways that the commander itself will just I don't know, find a, a comfort level with those different categories. There's just never a one size fits all to any of this. And frankly, that's what I think makes Commander so dang cool. Yeah, I, I do like that Commander as a format is almost one that like you can almost shirk entire categories from your deck because you have a Commander that's going to fill the role. Like if, if you were playing modern and you completely just didn't run any instance or sorceries, um, 
chances are you probably wouldn't be doing very well. Um, you you kind of need to cover all those bases with 60 card formats, whereas in Commander, um, you have a card you know devoted to your deck that you can kind of build around, so you don't have to play any certain cards of a certain type as much because um, you're able to take care of that already. Yeah, this whole episode for me is just a confirmation that like those deck building templates can be interesting starting points, but really it's so much more exciting once you do use them as sort of the stepping stone that they are. They're never a quota that you must reach. They are an interesting way to begin down a path, but as all of these examples have shown, there's a lot of personalization and customization that comes with it, and that just makes Commander so much fun. So it's been cool to see the numbers on it, but also a lot of it comes down to the feels as well. So anyway, fellas, this has been such a cool episode but i think we do need to call it to a close so if our listeners want to get in touch with us where is it that they can find us all matt so you can find me on the twitters at mathemus 55 that's m-a-t-h-i-m-u-s 55 and don't forget wednesday evenings we are streaming games at twitch.tv slash edh retcast um, our guests are always awesome always better at magic than us um, so make sure you <laughs> tune in um, because you'll learn from the guests and we're just there for the ride <laughs> man. and dana you can find me on the Twitter words at Dana Roach. You can find me on my other podcast, CMDR Central. I'm writing articles for EDH Rec and for Commander's Herald. And you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash EDH Reccast. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter. And you can find the cast at EDH Reccast on both Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRecCast at gmail.com. Our thanks go out once again to the whole team at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And we want to thank our sponsors. Once again, they are TCG Player and CardKingdom.com and Altersleeves.com. You can find them using the price info links on EDH Rec or by visiting CardKingdom.com slash EDH Rec or Altersleeves.com slash EDH Reccast to show your support for the show. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights. But until then, remember, EDH wreck your deck before you wreck your deck. <laughs> <laughs>